David's root. And today we continue talking about David. Um, go ahead and kind of throw this out there for you. Uh, just for parents, if you've got children in here and that kind of thing, just a heads up. We're talking about David and Bathsheba today, so I don't want any surprises or anyone upset with me later as I'm going over the scripture. I'm not trying to be crude with it or anything, obviously, but uh, just, you know, heads up. So um, it is what it is, and uh, it's a story that challenges us uh, in who we are uh, and uh, our very nature, which is, is sin, you know. And so um, this morning, I, I've, man, I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking and praying over this. Uh, and in fact, I'm going to pray here in a second again uh, over it and ask God to speak through it. But uh, there is so much to this passage of Scripture. In fact, we're going to kind of do a, a two-week two uh, part on this where we'll come back next week and, and uh, revisit some of this continuing in the Scriptures. Uh, but uh, I, think, I think, think you will find it uh, uh, helpful. I hope so. Uh, it, it's definitely challenging uh, to me personally. So uh, when we do this, let's, uh, if, if you don't have a Bible, uh, let's have our ushers go ahead and bring some Bibles. And if you need one, uh, just throw your hand up and let them know that you need one. If you don't own one, you can keep that one. Uh, but I would love for you to be able to uh, have a copy of that. We're going to 2 Samuel chapter 11 today. Uh, and uh, this passage is uh, it's a monster, and uh, in, in a good way. Um, but uh, man, we we you know we we've gotten to see David uh, go through so many things and do so many things and be led by the Lord and so many things and and put God into the center of literally uh, all the stuff that he's got going on in his life and in his personal kingdom and all those things. And then and then we have this. We've 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 seen some. Little things kind of coming along with David, but uh, uh, but this definitely, um, you know, is is where we re- eventually see uh, some serious issues coming about, um, which are just coming from his heart, and uh, that's that's how sin creeps in, in on us. So, uh, let's pray over the scripture. Let's do that together right now. God, I just I just ask that you would speak through your word. God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to to study it, to read it. But God, I, I pray that you you would speak to us. Through it, Lord, convict us, show us who we are as a people, and uh, God, just help us. Help us to understand, help us to acknowledge uh, the work that you have done for us and, and, and how that works into our lives and, and into the mistakes that we make and all those things. And uh, God, just, uh, Lord, just be glorified in all of it. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So uh, this passage, uh, David and Bathsheba, uh, is, is a pretty pretty famous uh, story in scripture. We, uh, prob- probably one of the most famous stories in scripture uh, where we see uh, uh, some bad decisions being made. I don't know about you, but I, my life is full of bad decisions. I'm, I'm one bad decision after another. On the, on the way here this morning, uh, I, I don't know if it was a bad decision or a good decision, uh, but uh, I, I jumped in uh, my old car and decided that I would drive it, and it's been running a little funky uh, and, uh, you know, I really thought it was kind of the spark plugs. I told that to Jeff Crow Wednesday night uh, when I was in it. And uh, on the way here, I realized, no, it's probably not the spark plugs. It's probably the fact that the gas gauge still doesn't work, and it's running out of gas. And so, um, uh, 
yeah, and so I, I literally was limping along 41A. There were people flying by me. That never happens in that car. Uh, and uh, we're, you know, they're like, they're like slowing down because they see the old car, and they're like, oh, this guy's not going to make it. And at one point, I pulled, I pulled into the village. I was like, this is as far as I'm getting. I'm about to call Jason Pennington or somebody that I think might answer a phone to come get me. And, uh, and then uh, I get, uh, I, I kind of, you know, kind of sputter through the village. And I'm like, well, I've made it all the way through the village. I'm so close, right? <laughs> Good decisions, bad decisions. Let's go for it. And so I'm back out on 41A. Well, almost, and then it stalls at the stop sign. And then, uh, then I'm like restart it, and then I'm back out on 41A, and, uh, and I get it going again, and I get back on the road, and I start sputtering up the hill and up the hill. It's like, oh, we're not going to make it up this hill. And then I make it up the hill, and then like cars are coming, and I'm like, get out of my way. You know, I've got to turn, you know. And so I turn in and coast down the hill, and it's acting kind of nutty. And I'm like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it up the final hill into the parking lot. Nope. It's parked with the police cars. Bad decisions, good decisions. Um, you know, our, our life is riddled with them, isn't it? And, uh, and David is no different uh, in his life. And uh, we see we see some things happen here where it's just it's uh, a few bad decisions in a row. I, I want to read this whole chapter with you, uh, and I think the best thing to do is for us just to read the chapter, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. So let's let's read through it if we can. For, uh, Second Samuel chapter eleven, um, and in verse two, uh, and, and in fact, I didn't mean to make it say verse two. We have verse one up there. I'm sure we do. I know what it says, but I don't have it memorized. Yes, let's read that together. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbi. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, this is an important... This is, I'm going to end up talking about it as we go through it, probably. This is an important, this is an important piece because this lays down, this lays down a decision that David has made. You see the decision, right? Like, David is the king, and at this time, at this time, when kings go out to battle, David's like, eh, I'm staying at home, send Joab. There's a decision. Probably not a good one. Verse 2, it goes on, and it says this, it says, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And the word beautiful there in the Hebrew is literally meaning very good in appearance. This word is like, like set aside for somebody who is strikingly good looking. Okay, and, and so he sees this woman and she's very beautiful and she's bathing on top of the roof. And he's on top of his roof but his roof is way taller so he can see everything. And in verse 3 it says, And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, 
and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So we'll stop here for just a minute. There, there's, there's a couple of pieces to this. And, uh, you know, when you go back and read this, I mean, I, you know, it's, as kids we would read this in Sunday school, you know, but, you know, again, we had the felt board going on, and it's, you know, kind of made a little better and not quite as, you know, X-rated as, as the version that's the true version of this or whatever. And, uh, and, and part of this, you're kind of like, you know, what in the world? Why, why is it even important that we know that, you know, where she was in her cycle and all that kind of stuff? Uh, it, it was important because it speaks to the fact, a couple of things, speaks to the fact, uh, first of all, that we know that she wasn't pregnant from her husband, and now she is after this has happened, and she is pregnant at this point, and we know that that means that this is David's baby, uh, and and this is this is a mess. They've got a mess, uh, and and so you know another another thing that we see here is is we see, you know, that it was important for her to do something uh, that was. Uh, you know, important with the law for her to do uh, this and take care of herself in such ways uh, that she's following the law even with this whole thing and the whole purifying of herself and all of this. But then yet, uh, a few moments later, she's doing something that's not a great decision, right? Uh, it's a bad decision. And so, you know, as, as we get into this, what we're going to see is, is we're going to see a rabbit hole, you know? You ever, you ever had a rabbit hole in your life, you know, where you, you make a decision and it leads you down a rabbit hole and then the next thing you know, you're, you're, you're going down to the next thing and down to the next thing and down to the next thing. And, 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 here's, and here's where it really starts to compile and some of, us, some of us know this, you know, from decisions that we've made in our past is especially when it comes with a lie and we're about to see some of that going down that it just compounds on itself. And in fact, verse 6, let's just keep reading. It says, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, this is Bathsheba's husband, and Joab sent Uriah the, uh, to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. They're in the middle of war. Uriah is at war. In fact, let me, let me even throw this against the wall and see how this sticks. Uriah is one of what we know as David's mighty men. He's one of like, you know, these mercenaries, and we see that over and over throughout the scripture here to, uh, to help us to understand this. But he's one, of, he's one of David's like main guys to go out and fight battles for him. And here David is, you know, David who should have been at battle and normally would be at battle. I mean, we know David as being the guy who's definitely not afraid to go to battle and is definitely afraid to lead the front line and all these things. And here in this moment, David makes a bad decision. Decides he's going to stay home. And as he stays home, this begins to unfold. Well, he's made a mistake. Now Bathsheba's pregnant. He sends for Uriah, her husband. By the way, her dad was also one of his mighty men. Uh, to go back with the mighty men thing, uh, the mighty men were also the guys who were helping protect David when he was on the run and hiding in caves and all this stuff from Saul. So we're talking about a, we're talking about a, a guy, okay? We're talking about a guy who is like not just somebody he appreciates being a good warrior, but somebody who has literally helped 
helped protect his life, David's life, along the way. Now, let's go back. Verse 7 says, When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were going, uh, doing and, and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now, what, what's going on here? What's going on here is David is trying to cover up. He's trying to cover up the mistake that's been made. What's, what's he doing? He's called Uriah back home. He's like, you know, using it as an excuse to say, hey, we need to know, I just need to know kind of how the war's going, and I wanted you to be the one to tell me how everybody's doing, especially good old Joab. And, and then David's using this as an excuse, as a cover-up, to then send him home to be with his wife. You get where I'm going with that. So that they will have relations and will in turn believe this is going to be his child. Doesn't work out. Here's what we've got. It says, verse 9, But Uriah slept at the king's door, of the king, uh, at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that next day, and the uh, remained there that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so much he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. This is yet another attempt. We have strike one and strike two of David trying to cover up this thing that he has done. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by a hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that, that he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David came uh, among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died, and Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting of the king, then if the king's anger arises, and, if you, and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that, there would be, that they would shoot you from the wall? Who killed Ambalek, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone from him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? 
Then you, then you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. There's a whole lot right here, and just to just make it like super, hopefully, 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 hopefully clear. Uh, you know, this is, this is the setup to David's third swing at covering up this awful thing that has happened. He decides, I can't get Uriah to go and lay with his wife, so I have no choice left. I've got to do something. Bathsheba's pregnant. I can't, this can't get out. This can't become some public thing. We've got to take care of this behind the scenes. And so he sends a letter with Uriah to Joab to tell Joab, take Uriah, put him on the front line and make sure he dies. He murders him. He murders him. This is, and, and, and then on top of that, there's this back and forth between he and Joab. In fact, it continues here, and I want to explain a little bit about the back and forth, because some of it's kind of code, if you will. Verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So the back and forth between Joab and David is pretty interesting because basically what we see is we see them kind of in code because they're sending this stuff through messengers and they don't want anybody picking up on what's going on. They're, you know, there's a little bit of like, oh, why would you, why would you guys you know, get so close to the wall? Don't you know that you know, at the wall this is going to happen and this is going to happen? And then Joab sends back a, a message, well, here's kind of what happened and here's what we did and, you know, all this stuff, and then David sends back this final message, and it's like, hey, it'll be what it'll be. Don't worry about it displeasing me. This is all a show. This is all a show. This is all like a behind-the-scenes show, in case anybody is to read these messages, that they're doing this little back-and-forth thing, and at the end of it, David is saying, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. In other words, he's saying, it is what it is. I'm not upset. And Uriah dies. But Uriah doesn't even die alone. Joab is an accomplice. Of course, now... To be in Joab's shoes, I'm sure he felt like he had to do something. I mean, the, the first message, which was sent with Uriah, and obviously it was sent in something that was sealed, because Uriah probably would have, like, gone and joined another army or something, you know, at that moment, right? Uh, you know, because, you know, it, it was his death sentence, basically. Uh, and so, apparently, David knew that that message was going to be safe by the time that it would get to Joab. But then Joab, seeing what's going on, and seeing that this could look really obvious, and that David very specifically wants this one person to die, he doesn't just send Uriah 
he sends other mercenaries with him, sends other warriors with him to make it look like an accident in which now many of their soldiers are killed. And so now the rabbit hole has gone from I like this pretty lady on the rooftop to let's have her brought over here to uh, you know sleeping with her then she's pregnant then he calls her husband in from war to try to make it look like he did this that they did this that this was just from their relationship from their marriage and then he can't get Uriah to sleep with her, and now he's twice, he tries, and then now he comes to the point of like, well, I'm just going to have him killed. You know, we've gone, you know, this has escalated real fast, right? And now, it's not just him who dies, but, but multiple, many of their people die per Joab's call. And that's a little bit of like the hope you're not displeased kind of thing that Joab is sending, but it's kind of double meaning. He's like, hope you're not displeased in my decision making of how I kind of took this and made it my own. And David's like, nah, it's all good. And then in verse 26 it says, when the wife Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, Bathsheba, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, and the morning probably would have been about seven days, they literally kind of, you know, hey, take this week kind of thing, uh, was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. Brought right there, the, the sent and brought right there is, can be literally translated sent and collected. Sent and collected. He had her collected. This is, if you notice, if you notice, things have changed here. Da- David here in this moment has changed, his approach has changed. We saw David all along being like this hands-on leader who's leading the people and he's fighting the fights and, you know, all of this stuff. And then all of a sudden, what do we have? We have David pushing the easy button over and over is what we got. We've got David sending the army out without him. We've got David seeing Bathsheba. Does he go and fetch Bathsheba to begin with? No. He goes and sends someone to find out who she is. Then he sends someone to bring her to him. In fact, a couple of people. And, and so, you know, all along through this, this is becoming this, you know, him, you know, really kind of having a moment here. And in this whole moment here, he's sending and collecting now her as his wife. Now, there's, there's, a, there's a ton of questions around this story. There's a ton of questions that we could, we could honestly, and we talked about this a week, you, you could do a whole series on this whole story and, and, and ask all kinds of questions and, and discuss all kinds of things. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a, uh, a fella um, by the name of Dale Ralph Davis 
that covers several of these things. And I want to read this piece that he wrote uh, that is uh, part of a Second Samuel commentary uh, called Out of Every Adversity, uh, because I think, this, I think this addresses a whole bunch of stuff. Some of it you probably haven't even thought about. Some of it I was thinking about from the get-go, and I'm like, okay, how do we handle, what does the Scripture say, that kind of thing. This kind of like lay, you know, levels the playing field here. I want to read this to you if you don't mind me reading it to you. Uh, here's what uh, Dale Ralph Davis says. Uh, this is a focus on the Bible commentary. Again, it says this. The writer's most apparent restraint, however, lies elsewhere in the utter silence regarding the feelings of his characters. We don't see the feelings of David, Bathsheba, uh, Joab, any of these people much, except for maybe in the the, back and forth between him and uh, Joab. Uh, He says, he does not clarify whether Bathsheba was baiting David, nor whether she... uh, nor whether she considered the fling with the king an honor. The emphasis is on David and his deed. I mean, furthermore, we don't, we don't know, you know, did, you know, was this, was this rape? What, what, what was this? Was this misuse of power? Was it, we don't know. We really don't know. And so we can't really, we can't assume any of those things because, again, the text, the emphasis is on David and his deed. And further on he goes, says, nor does the writer offer any psychology of Uriah. Did Uriah refuse to go down to his house because he suspected something was rotten in Jerusalem? Was this the way, his way of wreaking vengeance on the king, of allowing him to stew on his own immoral juice? We do not and cannot know. The writers offer no help on this. The writer offers no help on this. He doesn't even indicate how Joab felt about David's uh, sack Uriah plan. He carried it out, perhaps improved on it, but whether he felt shock or smug satisfaction or something else, we are not told. The writer seems to silence all feelings in order to isolate David's actions. This is pretty interesting. Uh, because, of course, we, we would love to have all the answers. We want all the answers, right? We want the, we want the behind the music. And, uh, and, and, and the whole thing here is that we just have to trust the Scripture to teach us what we're supposed to know and recognize that David made a terrible mistake. He made, he made a terrible decision. And, and the rabbit hole in which David falls into is one that is so familiar to our sin. It's so familiar to our sin. And especially you take something like a lie, right, that, you know, is one thing and then it compounds and compounds and, and, and next thing you know is you're covering up and you're covering up and now you've got to do this and now you've got to lie about that. And, now you, and the next thing you know, he's killing. He's killing Uriah. And it goes back to the statement, I think I made it recently, I've said it on and off for years. The statement is this, that sin will take you farther than you wanted to go and keep you longer than you wanted to stay. That's what sin does. It'll take you farther than you wanted to go and keep you longer than you wanted to stay. A friend of mine has a little saying that he say a lot. And the saying is, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. We don't think through sometimes our actions. David was in a moment when he wasn't thinking through 
his actions. And it's, and it's really easy for us to look at this and go, oh, how awful, David, I can't believe that he, how, how could David ever do this, right? You know, oh, this is just impossible that somebody could end up in this boat. But the truth is, is that the seed of sin in our heart grows, Keller talking about this, he mentioned the seed piece of this. He talked about how an acorn could technically, if planted well, and all the acorns of the trees planted well, rooted well, uh, that came from all those trees, that one acorn has in it the ability to populate the whole world with wood. That to me makes an acorn really expensive these days. The seed of sin in our hearts will kill us if we let it stay, if we let it grow. Your image, my image, is based on feeling many days like we are better than most people. And without realizing it, we, we say, oh, I love Jesus and my, you know, my identity is in Christ and... You know, I, I put all my faith and trust in Him and the work that He did and Him dying on the cross was what has saved me and uh, me trusting in Him. That, that's, you know, God, God did all the saving and all that stuff. You know, we, we say that. But then at the same time, in our hearts, which are sinful, okay, in our hearts, we actually show that we think differently by how we act toward others by how we think about them and whether we think about them in ways of whether we think we are better than they are or not. And you may go, Chris, not me. No, never. I don't. I'm not like that. <laughs> no, we're like that. And that's why I made jokes for so long about, you know, the you know, the saying, follow your heart and having that up on the wall of your house and all that stuff. I love making fun of people that got Follow your heart on the wall at your house. Somebody probably here today does. You're going to get mad at me. I'm sorry. But the scripture teaches us don't follow your heart because it's sinful. And I know that the saying isn't supposed to mean follow your sinful heart. But it's good for us to be reminded of what our heart is. And here we have an instance where we have a leader that lowers his guard All is well. Temptation creeps in. He's having a great moment. He's having a great moment in life right here. Like, you know, he's he's won all these battles. They've just taken over, you know, Israel and all. I mean, it's just so many good things are happening for David right now to the point that he's like, you know what, I think I'm going to set this war out. I'm going to stay at home in the spring. You know? going to see the flowers, going to change the oil in the car, going to get a lot of things done. I've been doing a lot of wars, you know. I deserve this. And so then, on that lowly evening when he wakes up from his siesta, and he walks out on the roof to get a little fresh air, he sees Bathsheba, and he's like, Oh, yeah. And he collected her. In the end, 
he literally collected her. And, and you go, well, I mean, okay, sounds good. No, no, I want you to understand something. At this point in his life, at that moment when he's on the rooftop, he had to make the decision in that moment that the other, what we think are seven other women at this point living in his house, at his beck and call, we believe that he at this point probably had seven wives. If that doesn't tell us there's an issue... Listen, I live in a house with seven women. It's a challenge. David makes a terrible decision. And it all comes from the seed of sin that's in his heart. This little thing. This little thing that's just like the little things that are in all of our hearts that we okay you know, it's the, little, it's the little pet that we, you know, pull it out in the dark. We pet it and we go, oh yeah, nobody knows about you. You know, you're fine. We're not hurting anybody. And then we're going to put that away. You go, Chris, are you talking about the same thing that David experienced? Maybe. I don't know what the sin is in your heart. I know what the sins are in my heart. And I can tell you it works all the same. The seed is all watered by our desires according to Scripture in which they grow and do crazy things. In fact, James 1.14 talks about this. If James 1.14 and 15 isn't specifically talking about David, I don't know. It says this, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin destroys. I was telling one of the kids in the car the other day. They were, I think it was London. London asks these like huge theological questions all the time. She's been doing this since she was like way little. Okay? Like you should have like a three-year-old asking you about like, you know, I don't know, the Trinity or something, you know? And... Um, and she asks me about something, and she says, is this a sin? And she's just, you know, she's just always thinking. She's a thinker. And uh, she's also a stinker, but whatever. Um, and so, uh, and she, she says, is this a sin? And I had to, like, think for a minute. I was like, well, uh, it can be, you know. And we talked a little bit about that. And in the midst of that conversation, I was reminded of how these little seeds lead us to things later on, decisions, bad decisions that we end up making when we lower our guard in those moments. And, and oftentimes, it's in those moments when things are going so good that it creeps in. And I see this in leadership a lot. I've seen this in leadership over the years. I've seen it, obviously we've seen it with all kinds of, you know, political things or whatever, but I've, I've, you see this with pastors. I told our staff this week, it's gotten to where I cringe when I see a news story that has the word pastor in it. Why? Because it's never like, pastor leads his church to do great things for the kingdom. You know? It's always like, pastor slept with someone, pastor stole money, pastor did this, you know, whatever it is, you know? And there is this effect that happens where people get into a bubble. And their reality is not the reality of the world. 
And if you think about it, in those moments when we are riding high, you know what I'm talking about? Like when we, you know, we, we got the promotion, we got everything, everything's going so good. And in those moments is when we are our weakest. The question is this. Can God redeem our bad decisions? Can God redeem our bad decisions? What about our terrible decisions? So next week, we're going to talk about how to deal with what happens after the bad decisions. The truth is, we've all made bad decisions. We can't look at David today and go, oh, David, he's a terrible person. No, he's a sinner just like us, okay? And the truth is, we've all made bad decisions at some point in time, and we're probably going to make bad decisions again, I'm pretty sure, because that's what happens, because we are sinners, and even those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus as their Savior and have believed in Him will still find themselves sinning in their lives and make bad decisions. And so we, we need to know how do we handle those things in this life. And we'll talk about that next week. But to go back to the question... Can God redeem our bad decisions to at least not leave us too much hanging today? Romans 8.1 says this. It says, There is no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation, no disapproval, no damnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sin is a danger in our hearts. We all have it. When God is not the sinner, we usually are. Right? I mean, you see that difference between David's leadership, like just a chapter or two ago, he's going to get the ark, and then now this, and where's the ark? Oh, the ark's out on the battlefield now with the guys. Where is David not? He's not with the ark. He is not, not with the Lord. Like there's so, there's so much back and forth, we don't have the time in this passage. There is hope in Jesus. He came to save sinners. And we've got to pay attention to the seeds of sin that rest in our hearts that we too don't fall down those rabbit holes. God, help us to see our sin. God, help us to kill it. I, I leave you with this. John Owen, theologian from the 17th century, said this, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Let's pray. God, help us to do that. God, continue to do a work in our lives that helps us to do that. God, we need you to help us to do that. We can't do it on our own. We know we can't do it on our own. Lord, lead us in what it looks like to kill the sin that is in our lives. God, help us to not be okay with those tiny specks, those tiny seeds of sin in our heart that will grow into things that could literally destroy us. Lord, protect us from that. Help us to see it. Help us to fight it. Lord, do the work in our lives that we can't do for ourselves. Lord, thank you. Thank you that the work has been done through your son Jesus, through the cross, that we might not only be uh, able to seek forgiveness, but to be given life. 
Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. For we ask all this in his name. Amen.